between Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. Looks like October the 3rd, I think they said. Is that what they're saying? So that, yeah, so um, obviously Wilder triggered that, uh, the rematch clause, isn't it? So yeah. him triggering that, they were going to say July, but they've moved it to uh, October 3rd. Right, okay. Well, that's... that's, that's... It seems a bit more realistic, though. Don't yeah, it's realistic. Yeah, I October. I, f- I feel like I wouldn't be surprised if, that, if that's like the first fight back. To be honest, what a fight! I think I think September. I think we'll be back in September. Yeah, yeah. I just gotta find what shit to do until September because I'm going out of my mind. Yeah, oh, my goddamn mind, man. Hey, but I mean, hopefully, hopefully it starts going down and uh, you can get yourself back into the gym. You don't have to be speaking to us on a daily <laughs> basis. That, that might that might be working out better for you. But yeah, while the Fury Free, um, look, we know the first fight was controversial. You don't have to yeah. you don't have to repeat that. Second fight was straightforward. Tyson just walked Bash through him pretty much, and. Um, the third fight, the question is, we've never really seen Wilder lose, so how does he, can he adapt? That's the question. Or does Fury just walk through him again? I think that loss was such a, such a bad, one-sided, mm. mentally crushing loss that I don't think that you can come back from that immediately, to, to go immediately into a rematch. Yeah. Because, because, so, Wilder trades on the fear factor, mm. right? He's, he's scared, you know, at this moment in time, well, before, before the fight, uh, at that moment in time, he's the most fearsome fighter on the planet, he's the baddest heavyweight in the world, most dangerous fighter on the planet. He's got all that fear factor in him, right, mm. that it, prog- that it um, possesses. He got stripped away, he got embarrassed, he got yeah. bullied. He, he didn't win one second of the fight. Yeah, and and every time he got touched, he was he was in trouble. He looked, you know, it looked fucked all the way through. Yeah, and and when you are absolutely stripped away and embarrassed like that, yeah. for you to then go straight into the rematch, not having any success in in that fight. So l- let's be honest, in the first fight, he had two moments of success. Mm-hmm. The rest of the fight, he, he he didn't have any success in that. In the rematch, he had zero zero yeah. successes. So out of Two fights. Yeah, he's had two moments where he's been in yeah. a fight. That's too much of a swing. Now, take, take add to the fact the mentality of, yeah. of the embarrassment and 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 getting crushed how he did. For somebody whose persona is that how he is, but then after the after the loss, which is bad enough, to then react by making these excuses, Masu, shit like that. That is that adds the embarrassment. That if it had turned round and just said, you know what, I just got absolutely scored and, and, and I lost fair and square, then fair enough. It's not false bullshit. You're not p- putting out false confidence and shit. He yeah. is trying to build a confidence going into a third fight yeah. based on bullshit, based on yeah. Masoud was to ever. But then yeah. you've done interviews where you've done you you've said you've trained in in. in um, 40 pound um, uh, vests and shit like yeah. that with all your training with weight and vests and stuff like that well come on you know and the problem with making excuses for a loss is that reality always comes back and checks you yeah. you know you get you get a reminder and the fact is that um, yeah he had Fury, uh, 18 rounds to get it right he did yeah, nothing to combat and, our... and he's not been able to do it and, and the fact is that Fury is just getting better mm. and so Fury fought in a new way that we haven't seen him fight like, 
and yeah. he was very good on that night. Do you not think he's going to improve now because on the having that in the bank? And he has real confidence. Like it's not just yeah. about improving. He has the like you said, Wilder's trying to build up this fake confidence. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I love I love Wilder to bits. I think he's amazing for the sport. The way he carries himself yeah. and 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 the 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 one I I genuinely also agree to the fact when people say he's the one single punching hardest puncher yeah. in history, right? The, the record speaks for itself. I don't I don't really care who's on that record because there's good names on it regardless of of there being so many fights compared to who you yeah. actually know. Yeah, you can't. It's not it's not about his ability, but you can't mm. you can't doubt his punching power. Punching yeah. power is phenomenal. Uh, people that when when somebody beats them, um, then all of a sudden they're a shit fighter and they're shit and this is this and they're overrated and all that bollocks. I don't buy into that. He was a he was a dev- it was only ever no, it was only ever by by people that are in the trade and people that you know fans that understand boxing. He was only ever really given credit as a puncher. He yeah. was only ever spoke about as listen, Wilder you can have boxing but he can take you out at any time. Yeah. And that is still true because he hadn't lost his punch. No. You know, it can still punch. Exactly. But the problem is, is that he didn't have a lot else to go with a punch. And when you go in against a fighter that is as good as Tyson Fury, then that's your problem. Because if you can't land that shot, you're pretty much fucked. And that's what happened. So if he loses this the last fight, I was speaking about it with someone yesterday. And it's tough to say because if he loses two on the trot like that as well, what what has he got left in his career? Because that fear factor of Deontay Wilder has almost been figured out. Yeah, um, it is a it is a it is a tough one. Yeah, um, but you can't. So before AJ went to rematch with Ruiz, mm. everyone was saying if if AJ lost that fight, he's finished. It's over. So you yeah, can't yeah, not yeah. say if you're going to say that about AJ, you mm. can't not say that about. Say that about you have to have the same sort of attitude. You have to have the same sort of attitude if that's what he's saying. But also. What I would say is, two losses don't Define don't end the fighters. They don't end the fighters' career, yeah. especially to the same guy. But does that? Yeah. Can you come back when you've earned millions? When you've been at the top of the tree and you've earned millions, you've been up there for quite a while, right? Mm. Have you got the motivation to then go back to the come gym, back, yeah. study your craft, improve as a fighter, add things to your game? And then take the long route back because you can't. Mm. You're not going to go straight back into the top. You're going to mm. have to have a couple of fights, then go back, get a, another crack at the top. Have you got in a locker where you want it enough? Yeah. That is down to Deontay Wilder. That was down to Anthony Joshua. You have yeah. when when you have a setback like that, it's down. It's down to you how you react to it. You know, yeah. once you've lost, you can't control shit anymore. That's it. Mm. It's done. All you can control is how you react to it, and and. If you react in the right way, Anthony Joshua got beat, got devastated, got smashed in that first fight. But he reacted in a fantastic way. He went out, he learned new things. He added yeah. new, new parts to his game. And then he went out there, not just knowing how he... Hey, Fight Fans, it's Michelle Joy Phelps. If you haven't already subscribed to my YouTube channel, make sure you go ahead and do so by clicking the icon right here. And also hit the bell button so that you can get alerts every time we upload a new video. This is Andy Proff, Boxing Social, in association with Betfred, and I'm joined by Galau Yafai on Zoom. Galau Yafai, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, man. How are you? I'm all good, all good, given the current situation and the circumstances. How are you finding life in lockdown? Uh, pretty boring, isn't it? Same as everyone else, but um, yeah, you just got to make deal with what we dealt with, and um, yeah, just get on with it. 
what have you been what have you been up to to try to deal with your extra time off just been playing the playstation really um just uh yeah just been chilling watching telly um been watching a news board and any other time i've watched it um yeah just same old really netflix playstation a few walks here and there and yeah just trying to kill a bit of time obviously i can imagine these these last couple of weeks or so for you would not have gone anywhere near how you would have expected them to because obviously the olympic qualifiers and that let's just go back to that because that's obviously a huge thing when it did happen you fought and then the olympic qualifiers the rest of them were suspended yeah what, what is your entire knowledge of the situation well basically i had to fight once to qualify uh it was a monday um i think it was 16th i think um the competition started on the saturday um so yeah two days um the saturday con um everything was going normal um boxing started everyone was started fighting sunday we got news that there weren't allowed no spectators um yeah no spectators at the boxing um that was sunday night um as i was just sorting out tickets for some of my family and friends to come um so yeah i had to tell them they can't come and then one day obviously i was fighting um obviously i'd weighed in got ready to fight um was chilling in my room i was fighting at about six o'clock i think half six seven on my way to the venue and um Roma Kraken just pulled me over and just told me um basically um the competition's getting cancelled after today you're still going to get a chance to fight and qualify um but after that the competition's gonna be cancelled and we're gonna have to revisit the competition wherever you left off so obviously I won qualified um I'm through to the quarterfinals now I would have had to box on the first day um again in the quarterfinals but obviously it got cancelled so I'll have to revisit that stage whenever it gets um, rescheduled for. So what was your understanding before everything occurred and the rest of the tournament was suspended or postponed, whichever way you want to put it? Obviously, going yeah. into your qualifier, you would have been under the assumption you were going to fight throughout that week. So before yeah. it began, what did the GB committee tell you about what was going to, what could have happened or where the landlord? Um, do you mean with the competition or uh, yeah, about it possibly being cancelled? Did you have any prior knowledge to it being a possibility or? Nah, not not at all. Like not at all. Like I thought, it was, I just thought it was crazy how it was happening. It was like um, I kind of expected um, no one allowed to be in to come to the venue, and it was just going to be um, just going to be the boxers strictly and no spectators and stuff. I, I kind of expected that but then um literally it was like a big shock when i heard that it was going to get cancelled because you never we never get fight and then get a competition gets cancelled never mind an olympic qualifier so it was like it was huge it was like i was i fight expecting to fight again a few days later and then a few days later and then it was like i've got one fight here to qualify and then i get to go home tomorrow and it's like it was a bit worrying i was a bit worried but um I felt a bit more pressure that I had to win because I couldn't imagine losing and then sitting in my house now for, I don't know, God knows however long it could be, two, three months. No, I, I couldn't qualify and I don't know what's going to happen in the future. So I'm just 
glad that I did it then. What was the conversation and the discussions like between yourself and the rest of the, the Team GB guys? You know, what, what was you all talking about once you found out about the fact it was going to be suspended? Well, I was just going over to oh, going, um, to fight at the venue. Um, so he told me first, because I was just going after the venue. So the rest of the lads, I think they had a meeting. Well, the rest of the girls and lads had a meeting when I'd left to go to the venue. So, um, yeah, I understand they had their meeting. And Rob must have told them while I was warming up about to fight. Um, so, yeah, they all, they was all going to train, I think. Because um, obviously some were fighting the next day. So they ended up staying to watch me fight and, and qualify. And then we watched Pete McGraw and qualifying and another lad, Lewis Richardson, um, fight um, towards the end of the night. Obviously, yourself and Fraser Clark, I know Fraser didn't get the chance to box, but you're two of the more senior members of the team. What was it like for, for the pair of you to find out that the rest of the qualifiers were being suspended and then also the Olympics have now been pushed back to 2021 at the earliest? Well, I saw Fraser obviously after my fight. Um, he, he obviously was gutted, um, but he was happy at the same time for me qualifying. So, um, yeah, it was a bit bittersweet. But, um, yeah, again, about the Olympics being qualified, um, postponed, we were gutted to be fair. I speak to Fraser quite quite a lot. And um, I've been speaking to him every few days. And, yeah, we were both gutted because we had plans after to go professional and stuff like that. And it's been put on hold now. So, um yeah, it's one of them. You just have to just get on with it. Let's obviously talk about that because I spoke to Gamal uh, last week, I believe it was, or the week before that. Yeah. And he said that he spoke to you on the phone. Yeah, he, he actually, he hasn't had the chance to come and see you because of, you know, lockdown, everybody's self-isolating, what have you. Yeah. It's, and he said that you wasn't sure as to what you wanted to do next because it's obviously delayed it for another year. And time will be ticking on in your own mind and you're there thinking, do I need to turn professional now, earlier than what I would have looked to? Or should I wait the extra year for the Olympics to come round? What, what's been your thought process since? Exactly what you've, what you've just said there. And, and it's still hard to kind of think what to do now. Because obviously I'm 27 years old. Um, obviously I'm t- come 28, obviously at the, end, at the end of the year. So um, I've not long turned 27, but... In this next year, I was going to go, and I'm obviously I'm gonna gonna be standing still in my career, not do nothing, do nothing, just waiting for the Olympics to come around so I can go there. Um, so yeah, it is, it is a hard choice, but I haven't made a choice yet. Um, I'm not saying I'm not going to go to Olympics where I am, but I've got my Olympic place now, so um, I'm I'm sure I'm sure I'll be going to Olympic Games next year. I mean, it, once boxing or just normal normal day life does resume. Where does it leave you with regards to other tournaments in the build-up to the Olympics next year, provided they do take place next year? Will, will it be the tournaments that would have taken place as normal? Will, will you have to enter those again for the coming year? Do you have any idea how things may work out? Not yet, because we, we just don't know when boxing is going to um, pick, back, pick back up again. Um, and these tournaments, are, to be fair, I was itching to turn pro. I was itching to qualify and just go pro. Um, hopefully I would have done my own Olympic Games this year. Um, obviously, that no one will know now until next year. Um, but yeah, we're just going to have to see now. Um, these tournaments, I don't know how long I can do these tournaments for. And these are, 
in these other countries. But um, I'll have to just try and stay motivated um, as an amateur until until next year, which everyone tells me it's not a long time, but it's 15 months away. Um, it, it, it's quite a while away, so um, yeah, we'll have to see what happens. I guess one thing which, whenever I speak to people about amateur boxers, whether they're 30, 31, 32, or in your case, you know, 27, 28, people, want, people will say, you know, they're fresh, they're young to the game because there's less rounds and what have you in amateur boxing than what there is in the professional ranks. However, at the same time, there's a lot more travelling in the amateur ranks than what there is in the professionals. Yeah. How, how much of an impact is that having on your decision? Are you looking at thinking because of the, the taxing effects that it will have on your body with the extra travelling you'd have to do? How much of a difference do you think that could make in your decision? Um, the travel is not so much... Um, a big deal um, because I can see now in the next year I probably won't travel a lot um, obviously the qualifiers are in London so it's home for us they'll continue to be in London and now I'm here maybe end of the year um, hopefully they can they can happen and then we're into next year then so it's just one or two one or two tournaments to stay sharp and get ready for the for the big Olympic Games um, but it's just, it, you know what it is? It's, I started boxing quite late, so I feel young, but everyone feels young. Um, but we'd have to see what happens. It, for me, it's just, I just feel like it's the right time to go now. But it would have been after the Olympic Games, but um, now that I'm a away, yeah. So I haven't fully made a decision yet, um, but I wouldn't want to give my Olympic place up either because I worked hard for four years for that. So I wouldn't want to just give it away to the the next the next guy who's 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 there waiting for for their chance. I think I probably know the answer to this anyway, but I am going to ask it. Provided yeah. you did decide to stay on for the Olympics next year, obviously in twenty twenty two you've got the Commonwealth Games, which are going to be held in Birmingham, your home city. Mm -hmm. Would there be any temptation? Do you think in the back of your mind to hang around for another year? I know you want to turn professional. You're saying you feel like after the Olympics it would have been the right time but would you then look at it and think should I stay on for the Commonwealth Games in my hometown? Mm, I know what you mean but um, the only t the only time you see me going to the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham is if I decide to stay on it. Um, other than that I'll be dying to go pro I'm dying to go now so n even next year I'm saying it's a bit of a push Um so yeah, 2022, the only reason, the only time you'll see me at the Commonwealth Games in 2022 is if I just decide I'm not going to give a, a professional career a, a go. But um, that I can't see that happening because I'm I'm itching to go now. So, um, But yeah, it would have been great to, to box in at the Commonwealth Games uh, in Birmingham. I've already got a gold medal from the Gold Coast. So it would have been nice to, to be a two-time uh, Commonwealth champion and to do it in my home city as well, um, on my doorstep. It's just that the times don't don't look good for me being at that age. Can't be pitting thirty then, so yeah. it's not very good. I mean, that's one thing as well. When when the time comes, say if you was to stay on as an amateur, you would be twenty nine by twenty eight, twenty nine by by the end of it. Yeah, at the Commonwealth. At the end of the Olympics. Uh, Olympics twenty eight. Yeah, twenty eight. Right, so. For the smaller weights to compete at the highest level, 
you may disagree with me, but I don't mm. imagine you'd you'd be there for years and years and years. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, have a short time to kind of push yourself through, as we've seen with people in the past. Is yeah, there's a kind of a time scale you've got in your own mind as to when you need to make that decision. Yeah, it yeah, like you said, at low weights, um, they're normally done by five three, um, five three. But I I think. I think I'm an individual and I think everyone's different. Um, I feel like me at 27, I'm like a, I don't like to say it, but I'm like a kid. I'm like a kid. You know, I don't look like a 28 year old man. You know what I mean? Um, like I compare myself to someone like Cal. Um, when Cal was 27, 28, he was more of a, a man than me. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm a bit, a bit young. Um, even though I look young, I, f- I feel young, but like, like I said earlier, everyone feels young. Um, and then you could just, one one day, you can sure just fall apart. Like we see a lot of pros, they, they, they look great. Uh, one fight and the next fight, they're, they're, they're done. Um, but I hope to just go on as long as possible. Um, I know I'm going to get rushed as a pro because of what I've done as an amateur and my age as well. Um, but I don't mind that because... Um, I think I'll I'll be ready when the time comes. Have you put a time scale on when you need to make that decision about Olympics or going pro? I, well, to be fair, I can't do much now because even if I wanted to go pro now, can't I can't I, I can't do I can't go nowhere because the, the the pros are in the same position as the amateurs and everyone else in the world. Um, so we'll, we'll look to see after this um, after this pandemic is over and stuff and. And then we'll we'll look from there. But um, I've been talking to friends and people at GB, and yeah, I've I've spoke to the, the top people in GB. And we've spoken. I'm I'm sure I'm sh- I'm sure I won't just give up my Olympic place like that. But we'll just see what happens. I mean, again, when when kind of I know it'll be hard at the minute, but. Before everything unfolded the way that it has over these past few weeks, yeah. maybe conversations or talks begin to take place between yourself and potential promoters, managers, a professional trainer instead of your amateur coach, Rob McCracken. When mm. did or when will those conversations begin? I don't really speak to no um, no one, really. Um, the only reason I sp- the only people I speak to will be maybe my brothers. Um, people that are quite close to me, friends, um, people who are, who are, who have done what I've done and have gone pro. Um, and I'll speak to Rob, um, people at GB, um, and get their opinion really. Um, and just go from there. People that have, have been there and done it. You need that sometimes and you need, um, you need the right advice and not just what I feel at the moment where, where I'm just like, I need to go pro, I need to go pro. Um, because, I've always wanted to come a double Olympia since the last Olympics, and I've done that now. Um, obviously, that's if I go, but I've got my ticket, and I'm sure I'll make the right choice, and I'm sure it will work out for me, God willing. People will naturally make the assumption that you may end up with Eddie and Matchroom because both of your brothers are signed with with Eddie and Matchroom. Is that the most likely outcome? Do you think for yourself? Um, anything can happen, really. Um, I don't really try and and look too forward. Because 
anything can happen in boxing and in life and in general. Um, but yeah, obviously, a lot of um, a lot of my friends from from boxing from GB, I've gone with Matt and my brother Matt and Matt Tumar. If not the best in Britain, obviously you've got Frank Warren as well. Um, you've got some American promoters, obviously. But um, yeah, I'd, you never know. But I, I, I do like uh, Matt Truman, what they the shows they put on and stuff. I've, I've been there for years and watched watched all their shows and stuff like that. So maybe we'd have to see at the time. Recently, some news broke, and obviously everything's news at the moment because there's not a lot going on, mm. that it's a possibility that Deontay Wilder could be asked to step aside in the hope of making AJ against Fury this year. Is that something that came up in the conference call with Pulev's people? No, no, it's not. It's not. That's not something that's being discussed at the moment, but it's definitely something that everybody has to, you know, at least run through in their mind at some point because... Right now, we have a contract to fight Kubrat Pulev. Um, Wilder has a contract to fight Tyson Fury. And they are the fights that will happen next. Now, if Wilder and, and Aram, uh, Heyman and Aram spoke and said, okay, we would be willing to, or it, we would step aside for X. And Bob Aram came to me and said, listen, I can get Wilder to step aside. I think I might be able to get Pulev to step aside. Would you be interested? The answer would be absolutely yes. But for Deontay Wilders, I think one of the things, Danny, that this is going to teach everyone is that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? And as a fighter, I think this is actually going to help us to make bigger fights sooner because who knows what's going to happen in this crazy world we live in. So I will actually be saying to fighters moving forward, look, rather than that warm-up fight that you want, look, by the way, no fan and no broadcaster wants to see. How about you just take more money and go into the big fight now? You know, because who knows next year, what else might pop up? Oh, yeah. You know, whether that's another pandemic, whether that's another world war, whether that, who knows? But boxing's a short career. Get in, get your money, stay safe and get out. So whilst we, you know, you always have to plan a, a career for a fighter and a strategy for a fighter and a path for a fighter, when the time comes, maybe it's right to take it. And I think you're going to see better and bigger fights happening sooner when we come back. So, um, and, and again, that could relate to AJ and Fury, where it's like, if that opportunity did present itself, well, this is your chance to be undisputed. We know the money's going to be monstrous, but we might not get it again, so do you want it? And I know, having spoken to AJ, he would he would be prepared to move into that fight next. Um, we're more than happy, and we have a contract to fight Pulev. I think the more chance that has of happening is if we don't see boxing return by August, you know, and then every then all of a sudden it's like I'm only going to box once this year, you know, maybe I'll go straight in. Um, but to be honest, anything can happen. But as I said, right now. We have a contract to fight Kubrat Pulev, and that is the fight we expect to take next.
I'm going to quote Derek James here, who is the trainer of Errol Spence Jr. He said the following, I think that the game changer was Al Heyman. If you think about it in the history of boxing, there's only a couple guys making money, making a million dollars, making a couple hundred thousand dollars. Even though Bernard Hopkins say he was the champ for all those years, he was only making like $75,000 a fight, something like that I heard. So if you think about it, now with Al paying the guys what they were worth, everybody else had to do it to compete. So he made Bob Arum start paying, made Matchroom, made all these guys start paying the fighters. So all these fighters that may talk bad about Al or whatever they say, they have to pay homage because it would not be like that had it not been for Al Heyman paying his fighters the way he pays them because that made everyone else have to contend, have to pay more money. Now Matchroom overpays people just trying to compete, you know? Certain guys who's making millions of dollars now are not multi-million dollar fighters. So they have to thank Al Heyman. He goes on to say, how many fighters make millions of dollars? A lot of them, all around the world. So that's due to Al Heyman pushing the envelope, really making guys pay kids what they're worth, fighters what they're worth. All right. Now, I think that Derek James is partly right, but only partly. I think it's right to say that Al Heyman at one time in boxing did push the envelope and did start getting fighters paid more money. But at the same time, there were other promoters who were also pushing the envelope and getting fighters paid a lot more money. And in more recent times, Al Heyman hasn't been doing that. He's actually been doing the opposite. Al Heyman has been offering some of his fighters terrible advice and actually talking them out of career high paydays. We saw that with Deontay Wilder turning down the Anthony Joshua fight several times. We saw that with Adam Kalnacki turning down the Anthony Joshua fight. We saw that with Luis Ortiz turning down the Anthony Joshua fight. So, and of course we've seen uh, Errol Spence Jr. and all the other PBC welterweights not fighting Terence Crawford. And that would be a huge payday for any of them. So lately, Al Heyman has not been doing a good job in pushing the envelope and getting his fighters the most amount of money. He's actually been doing the opposite. Furthermore, with regards to Bob Arum, I wasn't really paying too much attention to exactly how much he was paying fighters, let's say 10 years ago. But when it comes to Eddie Hearn being based in Britain, Long before he ever made any forays into the United States, he was paying fighters very well in the UK. Maybe not as well as he's paying them now, but that has got less to do with Al Heyman and more to do with DAZN. DAZN really have had the biggest impact on fighters' purses in the United States particularly. Far bigger impact than Al Heyman. Because if you look at the money that Al Heyman fighters were getting prior to the zone launching and then compare it to now it's gone through the roof because Al Heyman has had to up his game for certain fighters to compete with what the zone are doing 
The zone have been so aggressive in the American market, it has forced Bob Arum as well, Al Heyman, all of them, to start paying the fighters way over the odds. The best example, of course, is Deontay Wilder. Look at Deontay Wilder's purses before Eddie Hearn and the zone launched in the US. Wilder was making two or three million a fight, sometimes less than a million dollars a fight for his world heavyweight championship defenses. But as soon as he sparks up this rivalry with AJ and DAZN launches in the US, Eddie Hearn's over there, all of a sudden, Wilder's purses start going up. It's not a coincidence that it was happening the same time that Eddie Hearn and DAZN are launching in America. It's not a coincidence. And of course, the biggest example of this would be when Deontay Wilder turned down the DAZN deal. His people, Al Heyman, etc., they had to convince him that they could pay him close to the same amount that he was being offered by DAZN. Or else, why would he turn the deal down? So they paid him way over the odds for the Dominic Brazil fight. They paid him way over the odds for the Luis Ortiz rematch. I mean, they probably lost an enormous amount of money, particularly for the Brazil fight, but probably the Ortiz fight as well. And... You know, judging by the information that we have publicly uh, with regards to the break-even point, they lost money, even though it seems to be ESPN who were fronting up the promotion more so than Fox PBC, but they probably lost money on the Tyson Fury rematch as well. Again, this is down to the fact that they are paying the fighters way more than the fighters are actually worth. This is what it's about. Otherwise, you don't lose money on a show if you're not overpaying the fighters. Yeah, that only comes about when you're overpaying them. When I say overpaying them, again, it's it's about paying them more than you can actually recoup from them by putting a show on. And it was DAZN and Eddie Hearn who forced Al Heyman and forced Bob Barham, etc. to do that. There was a time when Al Heyman first came on the scene when he had boxing on multiple different networks, when there was several British fighters who actually signed with Al Heyman, the likes of Lee Selby, the likes of James DeGale, the likes of Carl Frampton. Okay, some of you may remember this. And during that time, Al Heyman was paying some fighters better than Eddie Hearn was paying. Okay, but... Certainly, he wasn't paying as well as, let's say, uh, Eddie Hearn was paying Anthony Joshua. Because, of course, Anthony Joshua got Charles Martin to come over to the UK. Charles Martin was an Al Heyman fighter. Charles Martin wasn't going to get that kind of money, the kind of money he got against AJ, from Al Heyman. Eddie Hearn paid him that money. Okay? So, let's be real about this. But as I say, there was some occasions where, yes, Al Heyman, several years ago, back in the early days of Al Heyman, he would pay fight as well, which is, again, the reason that James DeGale decided to base himself in the States. He said Al Heyman's paying great money, so that's the reason he's gone over there. And that's fair enough. But it didn't last that long. And I'm not saying Al Heyman doesn't pay a good amount at the moment, Uh, for the majority of fighters, 
but he's not paying the crazy figures that Eddie Hearn's paying the likes of Anthony Joshua, certainly. And even other fighters in Eddie Hearn's stable, Dylan White. Dylan White has never had a world title shot and he's a millionaire. Can you name me an Al Heyman fighter who's never had a world title shot, but they're a millionaire already? And again, he built Dylan White up to that point before he ever went to America. And I'm talking about Eddie Hearn here. Before Eddie Hearn launched in America, Dylan White was already a millionaire. <laughs> right? Think about that. Uh, it really all started for Eddie Hearn in terms of paying fighters really well with Carl Froch. Carl Froch was in the uh, world, uh, what was it called now? The Super Six. The Super Six uh, Super Middleweight Tournament. He was in that. He didn't win it, obviously, but he got to the final and he fought Andre Ward there. After that, he fought Lucian Butte and he, you know, uh, won the, was it IBF World Championship off Lucian Butte? And of course, the rivalry with George Groves, that is really what blew up the whole matchroom Eddie Hearn thing. Eddie Hearn was building and building and building prior to the Carl Froch, uh, George Groves rivalry because Froch was doing, you know, good numbers and stuff like that. But after Froch Groves won, that's when it went to a whole new level. And during this time, obviously, Anthony Joshua was also being built as a star. So these two things combined, Carl Froch, Anthony Joshua, then, of course, Kel Brooks started coming into the mix. And all these different fighters under the Eddie Hearn banner started pushing the envelope and generating interest in boxing. You see, it's not just about a new player coming into the game and paying fighters or overpaying fighters and therefore forcing the competition to do the same. No, that's only viable if there is sufficient fan interest. And Eddie Hearn in the UK was able to build a massive amount of fan interest, more interest in boxing than we'd seen in the UK for a very, very long time, since the 1990s, truth be told. So, you know, he's the guy that actually did that. So again, while it is true that Al Heyman did have an impact in, you know, on boxing, when he first came into it, he did maybe push the, uh, the purses up a little bit, but that didn't last very long. And if anything, I would say zone and Matchroom have had a much bigger impact on fighters' purses than Al Heyman. Because again, just look how dramatically the purses have gone up since Eddie Hearn and zone launched in America. It's, it's crazy how dramatic it is. Anyway, let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. I'm just being real, people. I know people are, oh, you're a matchroom fighter. <laughs> Listen, if you tell the truth, you tell the truth. The truth is what it is. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, am I lying? I mean, how many Al Heyman fighters do you know who are millionaires and have never even had a world title shot? Well, Dylan White is that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So the truth is the truth, people. Let me know what you think in the comment section below. It's happening about. Join me on Patreon. I upload a minimum of two podcasts every single week covering a wide variety of controversial topics as well as live stream Q&A sessions. Take a look on screen right now at some of the podcasts I've produced so far. For just $3 a month, the equivalent of about £2 a month, you get access to all my new podcasts 
and my entire back catalogue of past podcasts, including my popular Confessions of a Nightclub Bouncer series. You can listen on your computer or on your smartphone or tablet by downloading the Patreon app from the Google Play Store or the App Store for free. The Patreon app also allows you to download each podcast in MP3. For less than the price of a cup of coffee, you get access to dozens of hours of exclusive content. It's easy to sign up, there's no contract, and you can cancel at any time. So come and join our community of free and critical thinkers by signing up with me here on Patreon today. Bob Arum says that Kell Brook won't quit against Terence Crawford the way Amir Khan quit. He refers to Khan as a chicken. And I'll come on to that a little bit later on in the video. But there had been some talk about Terence Crawford fighting Kell Brook, I want to say a year ago, something like that. But the talk kind of went dead. Bob Arum seemed to go off the fight. I'm not sure why. But now it seems he's back on the fight. And I think it's a good matchup for Terence Crawford because Crawford has been trying to get the PBC welterweights in the ring with him, but they've frozen him out. They don't seem interested. Or maybe their paymaster, their puppet master, should I say, Al Heyman, isn't willing to allow them to get in the ring with Terence Crawford at this juncture. So outside of the PBC welterweights, I think Kell Brook is a good option. He would be coming down in weight, as I say, because he's just competed at 154. And he looked fairly decent in his last fight. Brooks says that he's dedicated himself and he's now no longer going to blow up in between fights. And now he's going to make the weight a lot easier. If that's true, then I think he should be able to make 147 pounds and still be pretty effective at that weight class. Obviously, the older you get, the more difficult it is to get down in weight, the more of an impact it can have on you. But if you're a guy who was never living the life in between fights uh, when you were younger, then it might not be as difficult as you would imagine to make that weight when you get older, if you start living the life, if you start having the discipline in between training camps, etc. So I've never been one of these people who insists that Kell Brook should, ca should uh, campaign at 154 because I just think the guys at that weight class are too big for him. I think at welterweight, yes, he's going to have to lose a bit of strength coming down to 147, uh, but he's going to have size advantages over most welterweights. Okay, so I personally think that's still the best bet for him. And I would like to see Terence Crawford versus Kell Brook. I think it's a decent fight. Now, as far as what Bob Arum said about Amir Khan quitting and being a chicken. Well, those of you who have followed my channel for any length of time will know that I'm not really a fan of criticizing fighters who quit in tough fights. If you've got a guy who goes in there and gets hit with a glancing blow, and throws himself on the canvas without even trying, without even taking any serious punishment, then fair enough. You can criticize a guy like that, okay? But when you're talking about a guy in Amir Khan, who's been in loads of tough fights, who has been knocked out cold before, 
who's taken a lot of punishment in his career and he's shown a tremendous amount of heart before in his career. To call him a chicken and criticize him for quitting against Terence Crawford, which he did do, he did quit. But to call him a chicken and basically question his manhood because of what he did, that doesn't sit well with me. Particularly not when it comes from Bob Arum, who's a lawyer from New York. That's what Bob Arum is. This is not a boxer. This is not a fighter. This is not a guy who's had to show any real bravery in the ring, one-on-one fighting somebody. He's never had to do that. But yet he's running around calling people chickens and stuff. Come on, man. So my track record on YouTube is to go easy on fighters who quit in tough fights. Because I'm not in their position. I'm not the one taking the punches. Khan had been dropped by Terence Crawford. Khan was probably going to get knocked out by Terence Crawford. And he'd been knocked out before in his career. He'd been through real tough fights where he didn't quit before. But you can sometimes get to a certain point as a fighter where you just don't have the stomach for it anymore. Maybe you used to when you were young, but as you get older, you just can't go to the well anymore. I mean, we saw it even with Evander Holyfield. When Evander Holyfield was very, very old in his 40s, he fought a guy from the Bahamas called Sherman Williams. Evander Holyfield quit in that fight. But was there any quit in Holyfield when he was a young man? Hell no. But father time catches up with everybody and not just in terms of physically, but also mentally. You get to a certain age and you just don't have that extreme mentality where you can put yourself through the kind of pain and punishment that you could when you were younger. And that's where I think Khan got to in that Terence Crawford fight because he went in there saying that nobody's ever outboxed him. People have knocked him out and roughed him up, but nobody's outboxed him. Well, he found out that Terence Crawford could knock him out or at least knock him down and rough him up. And also he could outbox him. So Khan saw no way to actually win that fight. And so when the opportunity came to quit and get out, he took it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And to be honest with you, again, I can't really judge him for it because he's shown a tremendous amount of heart in his career before. But the irony, of course, is, and many people are pointing this out, that while Bob Arum says Kell Brook won't quit against Crawford the way Khan did, Kell Brook quit against Errol Spence. I saw some people say Kell Kel Brook quit against Golovkin. Again, I don't know what brand of crack they're smoking, but he certainly did not quit against Golovkin. His corner threw in the towel. Kell Brook did not want to stop the fight. If your corner throws the towel in, that's not quitting. That's not you as the fighter quitting. So people need to stop repeating that nonsense about the Golovkin fight. He certainly didn't quit there. He did quit against Errol Spence. And again, there are some people you know, British fans, Kell Brook fans saying that Brook didn't quit against Spence. I mean, again, what brand of crack are they smoking? Because he got down on one knee, the referee started counting and Kell Brook didn't get up until the referee had finished his count. He quit in, he quit in the fight. It doesn't mean he's a coward. It doesn't mean I think any less of him or anything like that because he quit, but let's call it like it is. He quit in the fight. Okay. He had a fractured eye socket. He didn't want to continue and he quit. 
probably the best thing for him, to be honest with you. I think even Errol Spence after the fight said it was the best thing for him because he got a fractured eye socket, the you know, the other eye against Gennady Golovkin. And after surgery, the surgeon or the doctor, whoever it was, told him that one or two more punches on that eye and he could have been blinded for life. And that was obviously in the back of his mind against Errol Spence when he felt the same kind of feeling in his other eye. And he didn't, he didn't want to be blinded for life. He wanted to live to fight another day, come back and keep earning money for his family. So he probably made the right decision. I know in boxing, there's this extremist warrior mentality, but sometimes that extremist warrior mentality can work to your advantage because it can get the crowd to love you. But other times it works to your disadvantage because you can put yourself in a position where you do end up with a career-ending injury, sometimes a, a life-ending injury because you want to go out on your shield and have this warrior mentality. So, you know, it's very, very precarious. And as I say, I've never really been a fan of criticizing fighters who quit in tough fights. Fighters who take a glance in blow when it's not even a difficult fight, you know, it's not a tough fight, take a glancing blow, fling themselves on a the canvas and start rolling around. Yeah, you can criticize that. But when fighters are actually taking real punishment and they're in there against top opposition, it's hard to criticize as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's particularly coming from a, a guy in Bob Barham who's never laced up a pair of gloves in his life. It's pretty rich, isn't it? Anyway, main point here is Aram looking at the uh, Crawford Brook fight as a possibility. Obviously, boxing is currently suspended. And when it resumes, maybe this is a fight we might actually get. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. Would you like to see it? How do you think it would go? Do you think Kell Brook would be competitive? Do you think he would be drained at 147? Do you think he needs a fight before going in against a Terrence Crawford? Yeah. Discuss in the comment section, people. It's happening about. Join me on Patreon. I upload a minimum of two podcasts every single week, covering a wide variety of controversial topics, as well as live stream Q&A sessions. Take a look on screen right now at some of the podcasts I've produced so far. For just $3 a month, the equivalent of about £2 a month, you get access to all my new podcasts and my entire back catalogue of past podcasts, including my popular Confessions of a Nightclub Bouncer series. You can listen on your computer or on your smartphone or tablet by downloading the Patreon app from the Google Play Store or the App Store for free. The Patreon app also allows you to download each podcast in MP3. For less than the price of a cup of coffee, you get access to dozens of hours of exclusive content. It's easy to sign up, there's no contract, and you can cancel at any time. So come and join our community of free and critical thinkers by signing up with me here on Patreon today. Vladimir Klitschko says that he finds it creepy that Tyson Fury keeps talking about this sauna battle that they had many years ago when Tyson Fury visited the Klitschko training camp. For those of you who don't know the story, just briefly, he visited the Klitschko training camp many, many years ago in, God, when was it? 20, I don't know, 2011, 2012 or something like that, many, many years ago. And while he was in the training camp, he noticed that Klitschko would always go in the sauna and 
spend longer in there than anybody else. And so Tyson Fury went in the sauna with Klitschko and he was sat in there, I guess, mainly in silence. And he was determined to try and outlast Klitschko in the sauna, win these little mental games. And he says that Klitschko got out before he did and Klitschko looked unhappy. And he then stayed in the sauna for several minutes afterwards, <laughs> just to show that you know, he was way better at enduring the heat and the, the steam of the sauna. <laughs> so yeah, he saw that as winning a mental battle against Klitschko. And Klitschko now says that's creepy and he's trying to downplay the significance of it. I personally think that there is significance to it. I, you know, I, I talked in a recent video about how Tyson Fury is very good at reading the psychology of his opponents or his rivals, particularly when he's in their presence. You know, when Tyson Fury hasn't met somebody, then maybe not so much, but when he's actually met them face to face and he can look them in the eye and he's been around them, he's good at reading their psychology. I'm not saying he's going to get it right every single time, but for the most part, he's good at that. And Vladimir Klitschko was a control freak. Vladimir Klitschko was a guy who liked to bring you into his world where it's all very corporate and it's all very serious and it's all very, God, I'm struggling to come up with the words, but those of you who remember the Klitschko era well, you, you know what I'm talking about. You know, it was all firm handshakes and sharp suits and, you know, all this kind of stuff, all very corporate. And Klitschko would bring you into that world and he would make you feel as, feel as though you're not at home. You're in his territory. You're in his world. You're playing by his rules. This was the mentality, particularly of Vladimir Klitschko. You saw it with all his opponents. Very rarely did you see opponents trash talking. Vladimir Klitschko. There was a few towards the end of Klitschko's reign. Um, the likes of Kubrat Pulev, um, obviously David Hay, and Tyson Fury. But for the most part, Klitschko opponents were very respectful. They played the Klitschko game. They would, sh you know, take his firm handshake. He'd stare them down at a press conference. And Klitschko just looked very, very comfortable in that kind of, you know, world that he created for himself. Tyson Fury understood that he had to come in and shake up that world. So when he looked at Klitschko all those years ago, when he visited him in training camp, he didn't look at him as the great Klitschko and this incredible sportsman and this icon. He didn't look at him like that at all. He referred to Klitschko as just another bear bomb in the shower. He said, he's just, he said, I was expecting something great and amazing. But when I turned up at the Klitschko camp, I'm paraphrasing here. He said, when I turned up at the Klitschko camp, I just saw another bloke with a pair of boxing gloves on hitting a bag. Nothing special at all. Wasn't impressed at all. And he said this, I think when he was British champion, Tyson Fury, long before he ever won a world title, obviously, um, because he, you know, fought Klitschko for the world title. So I think he understood Klitschko's psychology early on. And he understood that he had to plant a seed of doubt in his mind early on. And while what Tyson Fury said might sound petty, I think that Tyson Fury understood that on some level, Vladimir Klitschko is a petty man. You know, these little games, psychological games that Klitschko plays are very important to him to give him self-confidence. I remember in the run-up to the Anthony Joshua fight, and he did this in several fights, actually, Klitschko. 
But in the run up to the Anthony Joshua fight, there was one, or there was a, there, there were several occasions where Klitschko actually appeared to be significantly taller than Joshua. And I'm telling you now, Klitschko was putting what they call lifts in his shoes. So these are like some uh, some pads that you could put slide inside your shoes that make you taller, you know, a couple inches taller. And I think that's what Klitschko was doing. He was putting these pads in his shoes to make himself taller in front of Anthony Joshua, hoping to intimidate him. Now, boxers have been doing stuff like this for years and years and years, putting stuff in their shoes to, you know, when they face off with their opponents and they're looking down at their opponent and stuff like that. I mean, Sonny Liston used to put towels underneath his boxing robe because back in the days, uh, most fighters would wear robes when they came to the ring. A lot of them still do now. Um, but back in the days, it was like everybody was wearing robes. They'd wear these robes to the ring and Sonny Liston would put towels underneath the robe to make himself look even bigger than he actually was. So these kind of psychological tactics have been going on forever in boxing. And Klitschko liked to use these things. And we all know about the shenanigans Klitschko used to play behind the scenes. He used to, you know, or, or his team would make sure uh, in some instances that the opponent had gloves that didn't fit well or were uncomfortable. And that is absolutely critical when it comes to trying to win a fight is having gloves that are actually comfortable that your hands can fit in and you can make a good fist because it can seriously impact on your, you know, punching power and, and all that kind of stuff if you don't have gloves that fit correctly. Yeah. So Klitschko would always, you know, would try and do that. Illegal tactics in the ring, excess holding, leaning down on the opponents, the referees and the judges, uh, often helping Klitschko out, particularly the referees, spongy canvases, which the opponents were not used to, but Klitschko would always train on. All this kind of stuff that Klitschko would do, all kind of different shenanigans. Also, something Kubrat Pulev complained about is where Klitschko, uh, according to him, was only tested after the fight, drug tested, whereas Kubrat Pulev was tested countless times before their fight. So again, these are all psychological tricks that Klitschko would play on the opponent to try and unsettle them and to try and gain an upper hand, as well as the stuff at press conferences, you know, the, the firm handshakes and drawing them into his corporate Klitschko world. Yeah. Again, on some level, Klitschko's a petty man. Tyson Fury understood this, and so he thought, you know what? I'm going to challenge Klitschko at one of his little petty battles in his own camp and show him that I'm not like these other guys who want to suck up to you and shake your hand and, you know, play your game. I'm not going to play your game. In fact, in fact let me take that back. I'm going to play your game, but I'm going to beat you at your game. I'm not going to play your game the way you want me to play it as the, you know, as the uh, polite sportsman, because that's how a lot of Klitschko opponents came across. It's all very polite and all very sporting and professional. That's how Klitschko liked it. Whereas Tyson Fury was like, nah, I'm going to come in, upset the apple cart. And he got in there early with, <laughs> with Klitschko in the, in, the, in the sauna situation. So Klitschko can try and downplay it as much as he wants. I think it was significant. I really do. And it was obviously significant in Fury's mind, again, because he understands the petty nature of Vladimir Klitschko. Petty little things like that mean a lot to Klitschko, which is why he does them. 
which is why there are so many petty things that he would do. Yeah? Because he relied on those things psychologically. So that's my take on it anyway. Um, yeah, Klitschko can dismiss it as much as he wants, but the result is there for all to see. When they got in the ring together, Klitschko couldn't do anything. He was paralyzed by the Gypsy King. Tyson Fury boxed circles around him. He was in his head long before they ever stepped in the ring. And maybe it goes all the way back to that sauna incident. And when Tyson Fury was in training camp, I'm sure that Klitschko noticed Fury had a different kind of energy about him to a lot of the other, you know, young pros who he had in his uh, training camps over the years. And one thing as well with Tyson Fury is that he never sparred Vladimir Klitschko. And personally, I think that's a good, it, it was good for him to not spar Klitschko. Because Klitschko would like to get a read of future opponents by sparring them. And two opponents who Klitschko never sparred, well, I, I, there, there are many others that he never sparred as well, but I'm just going to give you an example of two who he never sparred. He never sparred uh, Bryant Jennings, and he never sparred Tyson Fury. Now, Bryant Jennings did much better against Klitschko than most people expected. He never came close to getting stopped in that fight, and he managed to go the distance. Uh, to be fair, because it was in the United States, they didn't allow Klitschko to do all the holding and leaning that he normally does, and it made Klitschko uncomfortable. You could see it in the fight. You could see it in his face and his body language. The fact he wasn't allowed to hold and lean made him uncomfortable and unsure of himself, and he wasn't throwing his punches with the same kind of venom that you would normally see. And then, of course, you know, he fought Tyson Fury and it was the same kind of thing. You know, he just wasn't comfortable in the fight. Uh, Fury got under his skin, got in his head and managed to outbox him over 12 rounds. So, yeah, anyway, just some musings on the Klitschko-Tyson Fury sauna battle. <laughs> and uh, Tyson Fury's ability to read the psychology of his rivals and his opponents and he, he has a good ability to do that so yeah let me know what you guys think in the comment section below it's Hammer I'm out join me on Patreon I upload a minimum of two podcasts every single week covering a wide variety of controversial topics as well as live stream Q&A sessions take a look on screen right now at some of the podcasts I've produced so far for just $3 a month, the equivalent of about £2 a month, you get access to all my new podcasts and my entire back catalogue of past podcasts, including my popular Confessions of a Nightclub Bouncer series. You can listen on your computer or on your smartphone or tablet by downloading the Patreon app from the Google Play Store or the App Store for free. The Patreon app also allows you to download each podcast in MP3. For less than the price of a cup of coffee, you get access to dozens of hours of exclusive content. It's easy to sign up, there's no contract, and you can cancel at any time. So come and join our community of free and critical thinkers by signing up with me here on Patreon today.